0: Psalm chapter number 86 is where we are this morning, and we don't know the exact circumstances of exactly when this was written, exactly all of the the circumstances, or who exactly even wrote it. If you read verse number one, it seems to imply that the timing is that, of course, uh, Judah, Had been taken captive, and Israel had been taken captive, and now they have returned. That seems to be the implication there when it says, Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. And so we know from the Bible that you have this uh, time of uh, during Ezra and Nehemiah, and they uh, returned to the land and they built the temple and they built the wall and uh, there was a there's great work that was being done and, and maybe it was written during this time maybe it was written a little bit afterwards we're not exactly sure but as you read this passage and and you consider that the nation of Israel have been taken captive and they've been taken captive because of their sin Amen? That's why they were taken captive. They were taken captive because of their sin, and and God had left the remnant, and God had been good, and now God is is returning the people back to the land, and and that seems to be the implication there, and this was the promised land. Amen? This was the land that was given to their father, Abraham. This was the land given to the patriarchs. This was the promised land that was just for them, and they had been taken out, And now God had returned them to the land that was theirs, that God had promised them, the the place that they were supposed to be, if you will. And yet, isn't it clear when you read maybe verse number 4 or 5 or verse number 6, especially verse number 6 when he says, Wilt thou not revive us again? Isn't it pretty clear that the psalmist is indicating, Yes, we are in the land where we want to be and we know we need to be, yet there was something missing. Right? Doesn't that seem to be the implication there? We're back in the land. That's where they're supposed to be, right? We're supposed to be in the land. This is the promised land. This was for us, and that's where we're supposed to be. And because of our sin, we were taken out, but now we are back. But yet the psalmist is saying there's something missing. There's something missing. That's why he's asking God, wilt thou not revive us again? You know, I think there's a great lesson to be learned there for us as as Christians especially sometimes we can get into this mindset of you know what if i just get to that place then everything will be perfect and we're always looking for that next stage of life or that next goal or accomplishment that we might have you know when you're when you're younger and you're in school you're in middle school or you're in high school and you're considering these things and you might say well if i can just make it to graduating high school and become an adult and gain some independence or maybe you're in college and you know once i graduate and finally get a job you know then then things will be good and i'll be right there and maybe you're working or something and then you're you're looking at you know who am i going to marry and And then you get married, and you're looking forward to, oh, you know, when I have kids. And then you're looking forward to, when can I send the kids out? And, you know, all of these different goals and places and accomplishments and maybe your job. You know, if I could just get that kind of a job. If I could just work at that workplace. If I could just make this kind of money. If I could just afford this kind of a house. And and sometimes you can have all the perfect things that the dream that any of us might have, and yet there could still be something missing. Amen. When you graduate high school, you're like, yes, finally I've made it. And then you get to college and you're like, man, college isn't quite exactly what I thought it would be. There's something missing here. And when you're single, you think, man, if I just get married, then everything will be perfect. And you get married and then you realize that, wow, this person, is, they, have, they have flaws. They're a sinner too, just like me. And now we have two people who are sinners living together. And then you have kids, and you think, maybe if I could just have kids, then everything will be perfect. Oh, wait until you have kids, amen? You're trying to raise up your kids, and they're a blessing, amen? Marriage is a blessing, and my wife is a blessing, and my kids are a blessing. I'm not trying to say any of those things. But if you think that just getting there will get you what it is that you think you need for satisfaction, you are sorely mistaken. If you think that there is some place here on earth where if you can just finally get there, if I could just get to that promised land, quote unquote, if you will, if I could just get there, then everything will be great. Even though those things might be good things. Those things might even be God's will for your life. Just getting to that place is not enough. Just getting to that place is not enough. And the psalmist realized that. He realized that, yes, the promised land was for them. It was God's will for them to be in the promised land, right? Of course it was. It was for them. And yes, he was there, but he realized that there was still something missing. Because if you consider the nation of Israel, before that point, what was their history in the promised land? Man, if you look at the book of Judges, they got there. And yeah, they kind of, you know, they conquered the land a little bit, but they left not, uh, they didn't do the, the whole job that they were supposed to, and the people were still there. In the land, uh, in the times of the judges, they would fall away. Every man would do that which is right in his own eyes, and God would bring in uh, some, uh, some foreign nation to rule over them. To say, hey, you're living in sin. Hey, you're not doing what is right. The people would cry unto the Lord. God would send a deliverer. And they would live in peace. The deliverer, the judge, would die. And then they would return back into this cycle. And then you would go into the the age of the kings. And eventually the nation split. And man, that northern kingdom, they never had a good king, did they? The southern kingdom, they had a few good kings, but they had a lot of bad kings as well. And and they were constantly falling into sin, constantly falling away from God, even though they were in the promised land. We as believers need to realize it's dangerous to assume, if I could just get to that place, then everything will be perfect. What you and I need at every stage of life is God. That's what you need. What you need is a life from God. Hey, if you're in middle school or high school today, and I know that you have goals and accomplishments that you wish to have, but realize that what you need is you need God. And you need revival. If you're lost, you need to be saved. And maybe you're single and you're thinking, man, I just need a husband or I need a wife or, you know, if I could just, you know, get that perfect job or whatever. No, 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 no. More than that job, more than that spouse, you need God. And you need to be living in revival. And that's what the psalmist is saying is, we're in that place, but God, we need revival. We need revival. And he says it very plainly and clearly, wilt thou not revive us again? Why did they need revival? How did he know that they needed revival? He says it there, that thy people may rejoice in thee. The psalmist realized, you know what, we're in the place that we're supposed to be, but we're not living in joy. You ever been there? You get to that place that you've always wanted to be at, and yet you don't have the joy. The joy that you thought you would have. The joy that maybe other people tell you about, and you're there. Man, I got that perfect job at that perfect company. And I'm making a lot of money. And I'm able to do all of these things. And I, I, you know, I finally, you know, got married or have kids or whatever the case might be. Finally, I'm there in that place. And yet, if you're honest with yourself, you might say, you know what? There's, there's just something missing there. There's a joy that's missing there. And the psalmist realized that. He realized, man, we're in that place, that perfect place that's just for us. But we don't have joy. Can we be honest today? You be honest with yourself. Are you living in joy today? Do you have joy in your life? Man, each and every day, are you waking up and living in joy? Going to the workplace in joy? Coming home to your family in joy? And and serving God in joy? And reading your Bible in joy? Can we be honest with ourselves and, and ask yourself the question, Am I really joyful? If you are missing a joy, you need revival. God wants you to be joyful. And I I want to take a look at three words here in verse number five. Actually, verse number four and verse number six. Just three words that I want you to remember about revival for rejoicing. The first word is the word turn. The first word is the word turn. It's found in verse number four. Turn us, O God of our salvation. The psalmist, I'm sure, was well aware of the history of the nation of Israel. He was well aware of the history of his people that they were constantly running away from God. They were constantly following after idols. They were constantly doing their own thing, doing that which is right in their own eyes. They were constantly leaving. And the psalmist realized, you know what, we might be in the land today, but unless God turns us, this is going to be the same thing. It's going to be exactly the same thing. You know, I have two little kids. If you've got kids, you know, you know this experience of, you know, you're watching your kid, and your kid, now both of my kids are mobile, right? My youngest kid can now crawl, and so my youngest kid is very mobile. Goes all over the place. Everywhere you put her down, you know, she's all over the place. And uh, you know, you're watching your kids, and, and your kids are, you know, you put toys there, you do whatever, and they're playing with the toys or whatever, and then they see something, and you see that they see something, and you see the thing that that's not good for them, right? You ever see that? A kid locks in and starts making a beeline for it. You're like, where is she going? Oh, no, they're not supposed to be touching that. They're not supposed to be playing that. They're not supposed to be eating that. And so what do you do? Right? Sometimes what I do is, you know, she's, you know if I'm there you know, with her, like, you know, I'm just kind of relaxing right next to her, and she's, you know, on the ground and she's crawling, you know, sometimes I'll just, I'll just grab her and I'll pull her back. You know what she does after that? She just keeps going right after it. As if nothing ever happened. And I, I pull her back again, and what does she do? She keeps going after it. I pull her back, and she keeps going after it. You know what? That's like the nation of Israel. You know, they were going after it. And God says, no, 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 You're not supposed to be going that way. And the nation of Israel, they kept going after these idols. They kept going after their lusts. They kept going after these other gods. They kept going in their own way. And God keeps saying, no. No, no, don't go that way. All right, stop. You shouldn't be going that way. And you know what the psalmist is saying? He realizes, yes, even though God has brought us back, unless God turns us, we're going to be going our own way again. We're going to be going the wrong way again. We're going to be in the wrong place again. And the psalmist is asking God, hey, don't just pull us back. where our hearts going in another direction. God, we need to be turned. We need our heart to be going in the right direction. We need to be looking at the right things. We need to be focused on the right things. We need to be focused on God. And we need to be turned because we as Christians, we really can be caught looking into the display window of the shop of sin, can't we? We can be caught looking at all the delicacies of what we could have if we just did it our own way and it looked so fun and it looks so good and it looks so delicious. If we would just go down that road, it'd be so fun. It'd be so pleasurable. It'd be so enjoyable because sin just looks good. It does. And even there is a pleasure for a short time. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. You know, if you get a taste of sin, it'll taste good in the moment. But in the long term, it's going to be bad. You know, there's a story of the prodigal son. Many of you are familiar with it, Luke chapter number 15. I want to read to you this story about a man who went chasing after sin. And the results of sin, what sin really did to this individual, we saw that sin was wasting for this individual. In verse number 11, it says, And he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. Now, I don't know the exact situation. This is all the word uh, of God that is given to us. But, you know, just in knowing relationships and knowing people, and if a son is asking his dad for his inheritance, you can probably assume he asked more than once, right? Right? If a wise father, as is presented here, has a son who asked for his inheritance, he's not going to just give it to him the first time, right? He's going to say, no, 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 I'm not giving to you my inheritance now. I'm not dead yet. And so I'm sure this young man, who was persistent, Give me the inheritance. I want the inheritance. I, I'm going to, this is mine, isn't it? Eventually it's going to be mine. Just give it to me now. And. And maybe finally, eventually, the father gives in. He divided unto them his living. Verse number 13, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. First of all, you need to know that sin is wasting. You know, what sin wants to do is it wants to take from you. Sometimes we think that sin is going to give me all of the things that I want, all the pleasure and all of the things, but really the the core of sin is it wants to take from you, and that's what it did to this young man. It wasted all of his substance, and we also see that sin was wanting, verse number 14, and when he had spent all, there rose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Hey, you know what sin does? Sin will take you and use you until you've got nothing left to give, and then it will throw you out. That's what sin will do. That's what sin did to this young man. And imagine all of the things that uh, he had enjoyed and all the people that he enjoyed it with in this tough time. Who was there for him? Nobody. So we saw that there was a lack in sin and we finally see this end of sin. In sin there was this wallowing for this younger son. Verse 15, and he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. He was there, out in the field, feeding the pigs. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. He was so desperate, he would, feed, he would have wanted to feed himself, not with the food, but the husks. Right? That wrapper that's around the food, around the corn and things like that, he would have eaten that. And no man gave unto him. Nobody gave him anything. But praise the Lord, at least in verse number 17, and when he came to himself, at least he realized something. Verse number 17, he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe, and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be married. Do you see what happened when the son returned to the father? There was great rejoicing. There was great joy that was there. And do you see that turning of he finally realized, you know what? This was a mistake. This was the wrong direction. Now, unfortunately, he had lost everything already, but at least he realized it. And we see in Psalms chapter number 85 what that turning means for the psalmist. When he says, turn us, O God. Verse number 8, we see that a turning is when you hear God. I will hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak unto his people and to his saints, but let them not turn again to folly. You know what it means to turn away? What it means to have God to turn you is when you hear God. When you listen to God. Hey, when you hear the preaching of God's word, you know that God is speaking to you. You know that the Holy Spirit is working in your heart, and you know that God has a message that is just for you, and you want to hear it, and you're listening, and you respond to it. We also see that a turning is when you fear God. Verse number 9, surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him that glory may dwell in our land. Hey, there's a proper fear and reverence of the Lord. I think that there's a a feeling that many of you can sense, which is that people have lost the fear of God. They've lost that fear. They're not fearful to leave God. They're not fearful to disobey God. They're not fearful to live in sin. They're not fearful for those things. They don't care whether they are faithful to him. They don't care whether they obey God. And God has very many clear commands for believers. Amen. And you can see even Christians are not afraid to break the rules and break the law and sin and do their own thing. And, and God says, hey, we need to be faithful to God's house. Amen. Amen. Hey, we need to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. And you see Christians who are not afraid to say, you know what? Hey, I'm really busy right now. I know that God says that we need to be faithful, but you know what? This is my life and this is what I want to do. Hey, if you want rejoicing and you want revival, you need to have a proper fear of God. You need to fear God. You need to fear the wrath of God. And you need to fear the judgment that God has for you. And when it means that we turn and are turned by God, we return to a proper fear and reverence of God. We would be fearful not to serve him. We would be fearful not to give to him. We would be fearful not to look and to obey him. We also see a turning is when we follow God. Verse number 13, righteousness shall go before him and shall set us... In the way of his steps. Sometimes I think the the idea that people get is when we preach against sin and we do preach against sin. Amen? We preach against sin. Sin is sin. We're not gonna soften the blow. What the Bible says is sin is sin. No matter what any of us might be doing or how we might think the Word of God is sure and so we're gonna preach The Word of God and sin is sin, no matter what anybody says or what anybody else might believe. I think many of you, probably all of you, every single one of you here would say, you know what, sin is bad and I don't want to sin. Right? Right? Hopefully every one of you are like that. You would say, you know what, I know sin is bad, I know sin is wrong, and I don't want to sin. But how many of you who would say, I know sin is wrong and I don't want to sin, still sin? How many of you still sin? Anybody who say, I'm perfect here. Never sinned, right? Every one of us has sinned. So what is that? Why is it we know sin is wrong, and we don't want to sin, and yet we still sin? I sin, and you sin, and we all sin. How do we not sin then? Well, you see it kind of here in verse number 13, and shall set us. In the way of his steps. You cannot not sin without God. You need God. Amen? That's how it's done. You can't do it in your own strength. You can't do it, well, I'm just going to be more disciplined. And discipline is important, but your fleshly discipline is not enough to overcome sin. I'm just going to, you know, get out of the, right, the wrong places. And that's a good thing. To be in the wrong place, that's, that's not a good thing. You ought to be in the right places. Amen? Hey, being in a church service on a Sunday morning, that's a good place. And you know that there are places of sin. Hey, you ought not to go there. That's a good thing. But sin happens even in places that are not places of sin. Amen? Right? Even in good places, people can sin. Unforgiveness, evil thoughts, anger, all of these things can happen anywhere. So we need the Lord. You know, in Psalms chapter number 51, the 51st Psalm, David is writing, is writing after his sin. His sin with Bathsheba. He committed adultery. He killed Uriah. He's confronted by his friend, the prophet Nathan. Hey, first of all, it's good to have friends that will confront you in your sin. Hey, that's a true friend. Hey, Nathan was a prophet, and he's approaching his friend, but his friend is the king. You know what kings can do? Kings can do anything. All right? Kings can do anything that they want to. They don't need a rule or a law. They can just say it, and it's done. So Nathan, he could have had his life to be ended there, and yet he, he was following God's command of just going and confronting sin, and he confronted his friend in his sin. And David confessed. Praise the Lord for that. Hey, that, that's a good friendship right there. David was a man of God, but he fell into sin, and his friend confronted him and, and helped him to get restored with the Lord. And and he's writing the psalm in verse number one. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Hey, there was sin that was in David's heart. There was sin in David's life. and, And to be honest, everybody knew it. Everybody knew it. This was not just sin in his heart. This was sin that was open and out. And everybody knew it. And he knew you know what, I, I was living in sin, I need forgiveness. And he goes to the Lord and he prays to God and he writes the psalm and he, and he asks the Lord for forgiveness to cleanse him from sin and, and he goes down through a number of verses and he's speaking about purging, you know, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow and he's, he's asking for forgiveness and then in verse number 8, it makes a very interesting phrase, he says, make me to hear joy and gladness. We're not going to go over the whole story but David remember he was there on the, on the rooftop and he looked out and he saw Bathsheba he saw this thing and he wanted he had lust he said "If I, I, I need that and he fell into sin he got what he wanted and yet he realized that he was missing joy That he's missing gladness. You know, sometimes we as believers can be duped by the world and our flesh and by Satan. Hey, if you could just get what you want, you would just be so much happier. You would have so much joy. Isn't that how Satan tempted Eve in the garden? Hey, God's holding back from you. If you would just have the fruit, man, you'd be so wise. You would know so much. You'd be so much better off. And, And David got what he wanted, and yet he realized, you know what? I've been missing joy. All of these months that I've been living in sin, I've been missing out on the joy. Verse number 10, and renew a right spirit within me. Verse number 12, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Verse number 15, O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. Here was David. He got everything that he wanted, and yet he was joyless. You know why? He was living in sin. You know what David realized? He said, if I'm going revi- uh, to get rejoicing and have the joy back, I need revival. I need revival. Hey, let's not be looking out to, hey, if I could just get that next thing, then I would be just joyful every single day. Hey, it's not that thing that will bring you joy. It's not that even that person, even though uh, I have some great relationships and God has used those relationships, it's not just the relationships that will bring you joy. It's God who will bring you joy. And God might use an individual, God might use circumstances, God might use relationships in order to bring you that joy, but the ultimate source of joy was in God. And David realized that he needed that revival in order to get the rejoicing. So first of all, we see that first word of turn. Turn me from my sin. Turn me from my way. Hey, let me go into your steps. The second word is the word thy. Verse number six, "'Wilt thou not revive us again?' And here are the next three words, that thy people. That's a very important phrase there that the psalmist gives, thy people. He said, God, we are your people. God wants his people to rejoice. Does he not? As a heavenly father, I know that he wants his children to rejoice. You know how I know that? Because I want my children to rejoice. I want my children to be happy. I want my children to be glad. But we also need to remember one thing. Revival for rejoicing means realizing whose people we are. We Christians need to remember who we are. Many people today are having an identity crisis in that they don't know who they are. And you can see that. There are people who don't know who they are, and they're basing their identity on a lot of different things. One of the most common things that people gain their identity from is from their accomplishments, right? Students gain their identity from what? Their academic accomplishments. Hey, look at me. I got a 4.0 GPA. And they gain some identity from that. You know what? I'm a smart guy. I'm pretty intellectual. And they gain some identity from their accomplishments, or they gain some identity from getting into the dream college. You know, oh, I got into the Ivy League colleges, or I got into UC whatever, or I got into this college of my dreams, and, and they gain some identity from that. hey, look at me, I got this, I got into this college, or maybe the kind of job that they get, you know, hey, look at me, I got this job in this dream company. Everybody else was trying to get into this company, but look at me, I got into this place, and, and they gain some identity from their accomplishments. Sometimes people gain some identity from You know, just different uh, factors that are really outside of your control. uh, People gain some identity from their race race or ethnicity, right? We didn't get to control that. Sometimes people gain some identity from their family. You know, you did not get to control who your family is, amen? You gain some identity from that. One of the things that's definitely much, much more common today that, you know, I didn't even think would, you know, as a kid, I didn't even see this or think about it at all. But a lot of people are gaining their identity from their feelings, Right? You may not think this, and hopefully, there's nobody here who thinks this way, but a lot of people out there are gaining their identity from their feelings. All right? That's why a lot of strange things are going out there in the world. You know, a guy say, Well, I don't feel, I don't know exactly what they're thinking, but guys say, Oh, I don't feel very masculine today, so I must not be, you know, I must not be a man. What is that? No, you're a man because you're a man, not because you feel a certain way. Amen? All right, that doesn't change who you are. But they're trying to gain some identity because of that, because of their feeling, because I feel a certain way, because I'm attracted to a certain individual or whatever. I feel this way, I feel that way. And the world is getting all mixed up because their feelings become reality to them. There's all sorts of different places that people try to gain their identity. They try to gain identity in some success. They try to gain some identity from relationship. You know, oh, if I could just get married, if I could just have kids. And and they try to gain some identity from that. They try to gain some identity from the amount of money that they have. Or all sorts of different reasons. And, And there's nothing wrong, of course, with being married. There's nothing wrong with having kids. There's nothing wrong with having a lot of money. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But our identity ought not to be primarily in those things. Our identity ought to be in Christ our identity needs to be first in god and we as believers need to first think i am a christian first and then i am all of these other things or and then i do all of these other things galatians chapter 3 verse number 26 for you are all the children of god by faith in christ jesus hey we are all part of the same family if you are saved rich or poor no matter how what kind of college you went to. No matter the kind of job, that, no matter the language or culture or ethnicity, if you are born again and you are saved, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? We are part of the same family. For ye are all the children of God in, by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Hey, the church at Galatians, we won't go into this too much, but they were gaining their identity from different groups. Hey, I'm part of this group, and I'm part of that group. And they were dividing themselves in all sorts of different ways because their identity was not primarily in Christ. Their identity wasn't, well, I'm a Jew, and I, or this person is a Greek. Well, this person is bond. They're a servant. Well, I'm free, you know, and, oh, I can't hang out with that person because they're over there, and, and we free people. We need to be over here. There's neither male nor female. And, and there's all these division points, but if our identity first comes in Christ, there's a unity that is there. And we need to remember that it is not, you know, primarily what what it is that we do or accomplish that we ought to gain our identity because my daughter is my daughter no matter what she does. Right? My daughter is my daughter no matter what she does. she says, no matter how successful, quote unquote, or unsuccessful, no matter how smart or, or w- no matter all of the ways that you might try to rank or qualify people, my daughter is my daughter because she's my daughter, and that's it. There's no other way around it, and we as believers need to gain our identity in God. Galatians chapter 4, verse 7, wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. If you're saved, you're a son and daughter of God. Has that really sunk in? That the God of the universe that created everything is your father. That makes a big difference. Because who you are determines how you live. Or at least determines how you ought to live. Amen? Who you are determines how you ought to live. Right? You go into your workplace. Right? If you're the CEO, you are the CEO, right? You're the boss. And that determines what you do there, right? right? If you work for the CEO, that determines what you do there at the company, right? If you're not the CEO, you don't get to make the choices and the decisions, amen? You might want to make the decisions. You might think that you can make a better decision. But if you're not the CEO, you don't get to make the decisions, right? Because of who you are. You're a manager or you're an employee or whatever the case might be. In a family, who you are determines what you do. As the father, as the husband, because I am the father and the husband, that determines what I do. Amen? As the husband, as the father, I'm supposed to lead my home. I'm supposed to lead my family, right? Right? As much as I might lean on my wife for counsel and might even ask others, if, if I'm the husband and the father, it's my job to lead. It's my job to guide them in the way that we should go, following God. That's a very important thing. And my wife, as the wife, as the mother, she has her own roles, right? Everybody has their own roles. My children, they have their own roles. My children want to be the boss. Every child wants to be the boss, but they're not the boss, all right? They're children, because they are children. That determines what they ought to do. Practically speaking, we as church members, who you are or your place in the church determines what you do, right? God is a, you know a, a, made that example of the church is like a body, right? The knee is the knee. Knees do what knees do because they are knees, right? I'm glad that my knee doesn't say, you know what, I'm sick and tired of bending and straightening and bending and straightening and bending and straightening. I want to do something different. I want to be the hand. Man, that looks so exciting. That looks so great. Man, I want to be the eye. Can you imagine having a knee suddenly right there in your eye? And I just want to be where the eye is and do what the eye does. It would do a terrible job and it would be totally unsatisfied in trying to do the job, Right? Because the whole body would be like, Neat, what are you seeing? Tell us what you see so that we can know what to do. And then he's like, "Ah, oh, I don't know. What I, what, I, you know. it has no idea what to do. But if it's in the right place, doing what it's supposed to do because of who or what it is, well then, it'll find some satisfaction and some joy. When you realize who you are, it helps you to identify and to align yourself with your role. Colossians chapter 3, verse number 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. The reason why a lot of Christians are joyless is because they've lost their identity. They've gained some identity and some other thing and some other person in some other role or accomplishment. But if you would realize that you're a child of God and align yourself with what God wants you to do, you would find the joy. It would come back again. The revival would return. Ultimate joy comes only when we find our identity in Christ. Lastly, I see this word, the word is the, verse number six. Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? A lot of people, they want to rejoice in a lot of other things. They rejoice in their accomplishments, they rejoice in a relationship, they rejoice in success, they rejoice in a lot of things. But if you want to have endless joy, you need to have joy in something that will never change. That's why God says, hey, if you want rejoicing, when you need revival, you can have endless joy if you rejoice in God. A lot of people, they... They they look for and they identify and try to find joy in, in some relationship and you know a lot of people they have that joy in their kids and I love my kids and I enjoy my kids and I understand the responsibility of my kids, but you know, one day my kids are gonna grow up. One day my kids are gonna go out, one day my kids are gonna get married. Hey, what's going to happen if I find all of my joy in my kids? And, of course, they're going to do what they're supposed to do, which is grow up, grow independent, and, and get married and have their own families. And then soon i am got to emptiness. Uh, what happens to me if I find my joy in that relationship? Then I, then I end up in emptiness at the end. What happens if you find your joy in your accomplishments or your abilities? Look how smart I am. Look how talented I am. And yet the way of time leads all of us to grow weak. All of us, we lose energy, we lose strength, we lose that intellectual sharpness and that ability. Maybe you were, you know, the top of your class when you graduated high school, but at, all of us at the end, man, we're going we're gonna to start losing some things. We'll lose our memory and we'll lose our strength. That's why in Philippians chapter 3, the Bible says, Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Okay, there's a lot of things we could rejoice in if we rejoice in God. Hey, we can rejoice that God is always there. He'll never leave us or forsake us. Hey, we can praise a God that that says, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. Hey, we can praise a God that says, I love you, and that will never change. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. We can find endless joy if we joy, rejoice in God. And that kind of joy can overcome anything. It can overcome obstacles. It can overcome health difficulties. It can overcome disappointments in individuals, disappointments in your workplace. It can overcome financial difficulties. It can overcome all of those things if we would rejoice in God. So how is our joy today? Are you joyful today? maybe hey, be honest and, and look at your life and look at your day, day-to-day routine, you Consider, you know what there, there is something missing there I thought I could find it in a relationship I thought I could find it in my success I thought I could find it in some accomplishment I thought I could find it in whatever the case might be hey if you rejoice in God you will have that joy forevermore and hey, we need revival don't we so that we could rejoice in God let's pray.